Afternoon all, you must know by now if you've been paying attention over the last couple of months that I have for some reason committed to travelling the country with these three upcoming idiots. We are going to all sorts of exotic places like Ipswich, Barnstaple, Poole, Reading, Peterborough, Chesterfield. We're popping over to Dublin, we're going up to Scotland, a few locations there. Obviously, sitting on a tour bus for months on end with Dan, James and Andy is not how any sane person would choose to spend their time the only thing that's going to make it bearable is if you guys come along to please no such thing as a fish.com has all the details get tickets come and watch us there'll be an exclusive first half which will never be available anywhere else and then we'll be doing a different podcast every night for the second half see you there Hello and welcome to another episode of No Such Thing as a Fish, a weekly podcast coming to you from the QI offices in Covent Garden. My name is Dan Schreiber. I am sitting at a humongous distance from Andrew Hunter-Murray, James Harkin and Anna Tashinsky. And once again, we have gathered around the microphones with our four favorite facts from the last seven days. And in no particular order, here we go. Starting with fact number one, and that's my fact. My fact this week is that it would take people around 10 minutes to adjust to the way Abraham Lincoln sounded before they could enjoy his speeches. <laughs> wow. So are the first 10 minutes of his speeches always really shit? Because he knows it has to be filler. And yeah, then at so the 10 he, minute mark, he launches into the He does the, the whole, uh, what do you do? What's your job? You know, <laughs> emceeing moments. Wait, um, uh, hang on, Dan. Abraham Lincoln's most famous speech was the Gettysburg Address, yeah, where yeah. I believe he spoke for two minutes. <laughs> so, <laughs> and also his most famous line is the first line of that address, isn't it? Oh, no. Yeah, yeah you're right. It's true. Oh, okay. I would say it was the last line. So it's What's the last Jerry's, line? Wasn't it, shall not perish from the earth? line yes what was you know. the first line four score, four score. Four score. I really so. would have gone the four score as the big line would you I would go by the people to the people for the people with the people um... you didn't understand the first minute and a half though did you that's <laughs> true because I was so distracted by his weird voice what's his weird voice did he have an accent or? He, he did have an accent but he also had a much higher voice than you would think so I guess all of us probably had an introduction to Abraham Lincoln's supposed voice through the movies and so on for me it was Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure <laughs> and <laughs> incredibly I that this weekend did you well yeah, you would yeah. have seen it then my niece had never seen it she's only nine and so yeah right introduced her to it it's brilliant so he, it's a fantastic yeah. movie yeah and we he just talk about that yeah <laughs> <laughs> so he comes out at the end and he does the four score and yeah, it's right. very baritone four score and that's what we know as lincoln but all of the contemporary accounts of his speeches say that he had a tenor's voice a much higher voice and as a result, there's a historian called Harold Holzer, who's written over 40 books on both Lincoln and the Civil War. And he found that there were all these accounts of journalists saying that for the first 10 minutes, people just really had to adjust to both the accent and the sound matched with this tall human who was quite gangly and just putting all the things together. Mm. It took 10 minutes oh, before they could settle in and go, oh, OK, he's actually saying amazing stuff. It sounds like a really weird voice. Because obviously no recording. You're good at but... voices, Anthony. Can you do us a little? He had a, a, th- a thin tenor, <laughs> or rather falsetto voice. 
almost as high pitched as a bosun's whistle. What? <laughs> 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 score. Yeah, it's mad. The New York and all the reviews, all the reviews are so negative of him. Like, the New York Herald said he had a frequent tendency to dwindle into a shrill and unpleasant sound. It just sounds. Yeah. Yeah. Mad. Some yeah. people think it was useful though because like there were some famous debates he did with a guy called Stephen A. Douglas, and he had quite a baritone voice, Stephen A. Douglas. But they think that maybe in a big crowd, the baritone might sometimes get lost there and the people at the back will be able to hear the high-pitched sounds better interesting. yes how interesting okay. is that like when your neighbors are having a party and you can hear the bass much more indistinctly but the high stuff is what really annoys you yeah so what? for me it's the bass is that a joke no the bass is the what? annoying bit, right? The bass is the bit that keeps you. Yes, you're right. Okay, so it's like the opposite. It's like the opposite of my life with my neighbours. Cool. Okay, it's great. another brilliant analogy from Andy Murray. <laughs> the whole thing of it being the voice being low. The first time I think I've then heard the higher voice is when Daniel Day Lewis played mm. him in the Spielberg yes. movie. Which I seen. Yeah. It's a fantastic movie. I mean, it's, it's it's no Bill and Ted. It's no Bill and Ted. Mm. <laughs> yeah, I read an article in the Library of Congress, and they said that his voice is closer to that Daniel Day Lewis voice than any other impression that anyone's ever done. Oh, really? They even said it was more close than the one Andy is going to do on the podcast in a few weeks' time on that article. It's amazing. Oh no! <laughs> <laughs> so when Daniel Day Lewis was cast for the movie which was after Liam Neeson had to drop out. He spent a year prepping. Liam was Neeson. Liam Neeson going to play Lincoln? Liam Neeson was going to play Lincoln, yeah. <laughs> I, d- I don't know if I'd take a role that I was second to Liam Neeson. Well, I think Daniel Day-Lewis was the original choice. He said no to it, and then okay. Liam Neeson got involved, and then Liam Neeson had... Hor- Incredible. I know, yeah. Sure, surely then Daniel Day-Lewis said, oh, God, fine, I will do it, my <laughs> lord. <laughs> I'm going to find whoever stole my hat, and I'm going to rip their head from their body. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so he took on the role and he spent a year possibly more prepping for it read over a hundred books and that's when he was trying as to find the voice the voice of lincoln wow. and when he eventually found it probably reading the wrong books wasn't he i mean <laughs> an audio book yeah, yeah. <laughs> when he eventually decided on what the voice was he recorded it with a neighbor and he posted it to steven spielberg in a package where he drew a skull and crossbones on it and put a black mark on it because he wanted no one but Steven Spielberg to read uh, it to makes hear it, it first. much more yeah. interesting <laughs> yeah. and exciting to be tampered with. If it was just a blank envelope, I'd be like, yeah, fine, I'm not interested in that. Yeah, exactly. All of a sudden, there's yeah. hidden treasure there. Exactly. I don't know what he was so thinking. Weird. Yeah. It sounds very odd filming with him because he is your classic method actor, I guess, Daniel yeah. Day-Lewis, and he insisted on being Lincoln on set. So he talked in that voice the entire time, on and off set, for months and months when they were filming. He never didn't talk in the voice. He wouldn't allow any accents other than an American accent around him in case wow. that put him off oh. his flow. Yeah. He, um, he made everyone refer to him as Mr. President throughout filming. <laughs> I think Spielberg insisted on that as well. As part Did he? Of the, yeah, well, they yeah. were both presidents. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, it was very confusing. Battle of the Presidents. No, no, he said, let's let's buy into this you know um oh so he said that everyone had to call day lewis president i believe so because he started coming in era appropriate clothing as well as the director to sort of make it yeah spielberg did that and daniel day lewis was not on the call sheet abraham lincoln was on the call sheet instead wow yeah you how do you dress era appropriate as a film director if you're dressing for the 1860s? <laughs> yes. Good point. Surely, yeah, that he just walked in and he went, sorry, we can't make a film because film hasn't been invented yet. <laughs> Everyone go home. Yeah. There's one journalist who described Lincoln as a slang-wanging stump speaker. 
That is a great phrase, isn't it? It's a really good phrase. He was known for being humble, which some people cast as maybe not sophisticated enough in his language. Slang wanging. He's wanging the slang around. His um, accent, we were saying before, was kind of different as well, right? So whenever he was supposed to say chairman, he would say cheerman. Mm. Cheerman. Cheerman. And um, so, <laughs> cheerman. What about this? If he ever said, winda. Winda. Mm. That's window. Window, right. Um, learned would be Laurent. And he would always say reckon instead of assume. Oh. Well, that, is, that sounds really different. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> wow. uh, but equally strangely, he also had a lot of misspellings in his written work as well. And he would often spell the word inaugural wrong. Oh, yeah. But that's, that's we think that perhaps that gives a clue as to how he spoke as well. If he, if he spelled it slightly differently, maybe that's he cool. spoke it that way as well. How, right. was it was it radically different did it start with a q no it, it would be uh inaugural okay instead of inaugural mm, right. inaugural and he stood so still this was another report mm. of the way he spoke so his law partner was a man called william herndon and herndon recorded that i don't know why he said this but he said you could leave a silver dollar between his feet at the start of a speech and it would still be there at the end i have a theory for why he did this so i was reading accounts of young lincoln so i don't think the- he actually did that i'm just what do you mean? That's... He, he didn't actually leave a dollar between his feet. No, 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 but he stood, he stood in credit. The point was, <laughs> oh, <I see>. <laughs> was to make the point. I thought you were saying that he had done that. Like, as a... I have a theory that the coin busker. was magic. <laughs> he used yeah. to be a busker and he always put a few coins there to just get people yeah, going. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, my, my theory, which probably is a, an established reason as opposed to a theory, is when he was young, he used to sit up late at night and he used to listen to his dad tell stories to all of his friends, really funny stories. Lincoln was obsessed with them. So in the morning, he would go and he would find his friends and he would tell all the stories that his dad had told the night before. And he would stand on a tree stump and that is where he would deliver all of his speeches. So he didn't have much of a stage. He had the space of a tree stump Mm. and that would have informed the lack of leg movement, which then took him to presidency. When he was doing his inaugural speech, he was thinking, oh, oh, oh. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) Um, The Gettysburg Address was not him what yes it was Mm. well wow okay this is a crazier theory than my tree stump theory this is he stood so still because it was actually a robot um no the gettysburg address was someone else delivered it so really at the event where he delivered the gettysburg address he was supposed to be giving a very short closing dedication which is why it was only two minutes long it was just a very quick thanks for coming guys Thank God these blokes gave their lives for the Civil War, etc. Uh, if there's a carriage in the park with the license plate, <laughs> blah, uh, it's blocking the way. You need to move your carriage. Yeah, exactly. The person who was supposed to give what they were calling the Gettysburg Address at the time was this great orator and politician, pastor, who was called Edward Everett. And his was two hours long. So that could be the one we all knew off by heart. Wow. <laughs> really? And, uh, so did he actually do that two-hour speech first? He did a two-hour speech, which means it's incredible people had the energy to listen to Lincoln wow. after that. He yeah. did the two hours. No and wonder then... they loved it so much. <laughs> yeah. two minutes after that. I think he was sick at the time as well, Lincoln, when he then yeah. gave the speech oh, afterwards. Really? And it kind of bombed, I guess, after a two-hour speech. It yeah, did bomb. Not... It got terrible reviews everywhere. So... The Times said that the inauguration of the cemetery at Gettysburg was an imposing ceremony only rendered ludicrous by some of the luckless sallies of that poor President Lincoln. Mm. He got a rich. Yeah. And in fact, he, there was an apology issued in 2013 by a newspaper called the Patriot News, who um, 
gave him a really bad review at the time. They said it was silly remarks and that maybe he was drunk and that it deserved the veil of oblivion. Uh, and then in 2013, they recanted. Oh, no. they said, I don't know, America. Of all the things you should be apologising for, that, <laughs> it feel, does feel quite far down the list. Um, when did Lincoln become president? How do you all know? 1860? Yeah. So um, when do you think the first town was named after him? Oh. Ooh. I would have guessed a few years after the Civil War or soon, or maybe soon after it. Okay, I'm going to go the opposite direction and say he was an influential lawyer and maybe that led to something. So two years oh, before he was president. Wow, is where who I'm are going. you and what have you done with Dan Schreiber? <laughs> <laughs> that is absolutely correct. Is it? it was 1853 because he was a lawyer. Some people who were setting up a new town brought him in to kind of sign the deeds and they said, would you mind if we named this town after you? God, that's and flattering. And so that's Lincoln, Illinois, really? uh, which is still there oh. today. And um, at noon that day, he purchased two watermelons, carried them to the public square, <laughs> and squeezed the watermelon juice out onto the ground. Did he use his thighs? <laughs> <laughs> Call back. Yeah, but then he said to the people, nothing bearing the name Lincoln ever amounted to much. So he said that they shouldn't really have called it after him, Modest. but fine. Oh, wow. that's very cool. Humble chap. One thing from the time that Lincoln was president was that the White House was an open house at the time, which is so bizarre to think of now, yes. obviously, because there are about two miles of security around it. But people were just walking in all the time. You could just walk <laughs> into the White House and people were free to climb in through the windows. They camped outside his office <laughs> if door. They were free to do that, right? <laughs> if it's open, why they go through the windows? No idea, yeah. actually. <laughs> but they were demanding jobs from him. It was just, it, the whole thing was carnage. He's the president of the country. He must have had one room where it was no, like, do no. not enter. It got, well, he had an office, but and it a got, toilet. Yeah. They had to cut it down to two five hour sessions a week where you could just knock on the door and go and see him and chat to him and ask for a job. Oh, I see. Ten okay, hours right. a week of his working time was spent just being harangued by people. And he called them his public opinion baths. And people would just leave inventions that they thought he might like to look at. Like, it's, it's insane. And he couldn't walk from the office to his own private living quarters without being bothered along the way right. by people asking for jobs. And the White House maintenance people had to build a partition to say, no, he actually just needs a corridor that he can walk along without being bothered all the corridor time. Corridor of power. Yes. Yeah. It's mad. I suppose it's kind of like an MP's surgery, isn't it, today? Yeah. But, you know. But for 10 exactly. hours a week. For 10 hours a week. For a quarter of your working for time. For the president of the United I know. States. I, I think he did more than 40 hours a week Andy I'm gonna say <laughs> maybe at the height of the war yeah you're right <laughs> and now he bothers presidents because isn't he constantly reported not constantly but by a few what? the ghost of Lincoln oh, is seen in the White uh, House yeah. right but people have you know presidents have said yeah yeah I saw the ghost of Lincoln wow yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's him <laughs> Okay, it is time for fact number two, and that is Anna. My fact this week is that 5,000 years ago, Scots built houses by dropping huge piles of stones to the bottom of locks and building their home on top of them. That's, That's amazing. so amazing. Such a weird way <laughs> so of doing incredible. it. And we don't know why they did it. These are things called cranogs. I mean, if you live in Scotland, it's very likely you know about them. I actually didn't know about them at all. Yeah, never so, heard of them. But there are about 600 of them known about so far. They're artificial islands that were built in locks and they would be connected to the shore by like a little causeway. And until quite recently, it was thought they dated back to about 800 BC. And then they just did some radiocarbon dating of pottery that's been sunken around them. 
and they found out it actually dates back to 3600 BC. Oh, so, so, so long ago. Before Stonehenge, before the pyramids. Wow. The Scots were just piling up stones in locks and building a house on top for it's, no apparent reason. It's not just piling stones, right? Like there's so much engineering that goes around yeah, it. Yeah, it's so, so impressive. So the, the word Cranog is Gaelic for son of tree or young tree. And the mm. idea is because they would cut these huge long timber piles and they ram them into the beds of the lock and then they would pile the stones in around them so they had a solid wooden foundation yeah. so you've got like a scaffold that yeah. you can stuff full yeah, yeah. i like, think there are different types as well aren't there there are some that are just timber so yeah. they're just kind of wooden platforms and then there are some that are stones and yeah exactly mm. and we've tried to remake them in modern times and it's taken about three years to construct one to be in a similar using yeah. the technology How did they and so on drive the piles into the bed of the lock exactly they have to, be me- they have to get meters into the bed of the lock yeah. And, you know, that's obviously incredibly hard to do from a floating surface. Yeah. Well, I think what happens is you put some stones near the shore yeah. and then you put some a little bit further away and a little bit further away and you put like a path to the middle of the lock or not the middle, right. maybe a few mm-hmm. meters away yeah, from yeah, the yeah. edge. And then you build it from there. So you oh, kind of make a causeway first. And if you look from above, you can kind of see the little causeway underneath the water. Yeah. And then how how do you get the pile to go so deep into the bed? Oh yeah, though? I mean, it's it's all crazy. Yeah, it's and how do you do it? It's yeah. just I, think, I think we all know. You pile up oh, on top God. like a circus trick. You just no. have people standing no, no. on top of each other. Sorry, it's the ghost of Lincoln, I think, is coming out again. <laughs> imply his stuff. If it's the Loch Ness Monster, we're... It's aliens! Of course it's, it's aliens. aliens! No, we have no idea, do we? It's it's absolutely amazing. People lived there until the 17th century, apparently, the last people were yeah. living on yeah. Cranogs. So pretty relatively recent compared with when they were built. I think the ones where we found the pottery, we're not sure if people actually lived there, right? Yeah. So the reason that we think they might not have lived on these particular ones is because there isn't any domestic waste around there. You do have these pots. There's no human remains, so we don't think it's a funeral thing. So we think it might be some kind of feast, maybe some kind of rite of passage, that kind of thing. So what has happened is people have brought some pots to this island, this fake island, done something thrown the pots in the water and then left it's a bar i mean that's obviously <laughs> just a bar yeah. it could be tiki bar yeah <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's a bar. you're pissed you toss your pot away you can't be asked to carry it home it's a scottish pub <laughs> it's the first pubs <laughs> it sounds so exciting being the person who discovered that they were really old so they are 3,000 years older than we thought they were. And it was a retired Navy diver called Chris Murray who first kind of discovered this. And it was 10 years ago and he was just going for a dive and he saw some pots and then he sent them off to be analysed and it turned out they were 5,500 years old. But he was saying that in 2020, he was going for a dive and he found a 5,500-year-old drinking <laughs> vessel. He just saw a little <laughs> fragment sticking out of the mud. So he took it and then he took a sip of water from it. And mm. you can think... The last time someone did this was over five millennia ago. Yeah. Isn't that so cool? It is amazing. Maybe people will be doing that with our old horrible Ribena cartons and plastic yeah. festival cups yeah. in yeah. 5,000 years. Yeah. What a yeah. nice thought. What a lovely thought. All the plastic will still be there, won't it? Yep. <laughs> yep. <laughs> um, artificial islands? Oh, yeah. 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 So lots of artificial islands in the world. I didn't know about the ones in Bolivia and Peru on Lake Titicaca. Yeah, I've been there. They're amazing. I stayed on them. No. Have you? Yeah, yeah. Wow, the floating ones. The floating ones, the reed islands, yeah. So yeah, these are islands made of weeds woven together and they're made by indigenous people and it seems like they were just made by the Uro people and basically they got to the shores of Lake Titicaca hoping to set up camp and like take residence there. 
thousand years ago. And they realized there were people there. There was the Keshwa people, the Aymara people there. So they were like, well, we can't live here. What should we do? So they built some platforms and then just sailed out into the middle of a lake and they still hang out there. Yeah, it's really cool. When I was there, they said that they went there because there was taxes they wanted to get away with. So Ah. it was like a literal offshore account that they went so they couldn't tax them. But some people think it was because there was a war and they went there so that people couldn't attack them. But yeah, they taught me how to make the reeds and stuff like that. And oh, cool! Yeah, so because went... you have to constantly sort of, yeah. it's like repainting a bridge, right? Like you're constantly fixing exactly. the reeds. So the... near to where the islands are, there's like loads of massive reeds, and you go over there and you cut them down, and then you kind of turn them into like little, not like bricks, but like little groups of reeds. And I went on a boat to the school because they have a floating school and a floating basketball court and cool. stuff. And wow. I was staying with a family of Uros and it was really cool. Wow. Highly recommend so that. So amazing. Yeah. Have you heard of Mischief Reef? This is no. another, another <laughs> um, created island. And it's uh, a new island that's been created by China. And it's in the, is it the South China Sea? I think it is. Mm, think. Probably. It's where they do most of their island creations. They are it? creating a lot of islands at the moment. And <laughs> yes. it's, it's causing so a called, lot of mischief. Yeah. They yeah. are. They genuinely are. I tried to work out, was this called Mischief Reef before China started creating military runways and hangars <laughs> and, you know, missile bases? And it's quite the, an innocuous term. There's Naughty Boy Island. Yeah. <laughs> silly Billy. <laughs> Mischief Reef is one of the biggest, and you can see photos of it from, you know, 15 years ago, photos now, and it looks like a different place. It is a different place, mm-hmm. literally, because it's been imported and installed and concreted and all over. But there's this bizarre war of attrition going on, kind of Cold War style, between the China, who are building these islands, which are contested, by the way, the ownership is contested, and the US Navy. So the US Navy keeps on sailing close to them to make the point. They do a thing called a FONOP, which is a freedom of navigation operation. And if you have a land that I think the barrier is 12 miles, like that's how far your border stretches into the ocean if the island is definitely yours. I know there are different sort of definitions, but the USA pointedly sails within 12 miles of Mischief Reef to make the point these are international waters according to the international community, so we're going to keep on doing it. And it hasn't broken into all conflict yet. Oh, a little bit, hasn't it? Because like, I think... <laughs> Philippines want it, Japan wants it, Indonesia wants it, Russia wants it. It's yeah. like, yeah, yeah, it's dodgy. But do you remember I was telling you guys about um, in Bhutan, on the border between Bhutan and China, China has just started building villages. Yes. yes. Like, yes. And no one That's noticed. Right. noticed. And like, what, in Bhutan, they started. In Bhutan, yeah, like the yeah. Bhutanese noticed and they were like, well, shall we tell the Chinese not to do this anymore or shall we just kind of leave it? And they just kind of left it because there are other things that they want to have a good deal with China about. But then the international community are like, well, last time we looked here, there weren't three villages <laughs> and an airport and a, you know. Oh, man. Yeah. I thought it was called Mischief Islands because of a, a ship. Oh, really? Called might, Mischief. Might well be. Yeah, I think it's in dedication to a ship that used to pass. And that I could be wrong about that. Yeah, but HMS from, Mischief. Yeah. 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 I, think, uh, I think that's possibly it right. It was a party cruise ship, wasn't it? It was a swingers <laughs> cruise. <laughs> Here's an island that I'd never heard of. Um, Dejima. Oh, yeah. Uh, this was created in Nagasaki Bay in the 17th century in Japan. And during the Edo period, Japan wanted to be a closed country, so it didn't want anyone else to come in. The only people that were allowed to go anywhere near Japan were Chinese, Korean, and Dutch. And they were allowed to do that for trading reasons. Okay. Dutch is a bit of a wild card. Feels like it? a Dutch got a weird free pass to the rest of Europe. <laughs> okay, whatever, not offended. 
but basically, if you were a member of the Dutch East India Company and you were trading and you were like taking some silk there or some spices or whatever, you would go to this created island called Dejima and you would kind of live on there, but you weren't allowed onto the main island. And there was like a bridge there with guards which would stop you from going over. It's really, yeah. really cool. But there's, a, th- there's an amazing book, uh, David Mitchell book, set on Dejima because it was it was very mm. famous. Japan's policy was they didn't want any Western culture coming in and invading them. So, which is why they really tried to block them out. And then you know wars happened and we got involved and forced them out of it. But okay. yeah, it's so brilliant. What was um, the book? The Thousand Autumns of Jacob de Zoet. And yeah, so it's about this Dutch guy who goes over and stays there. But yeah, completely fake. Yeah, and while you're on there, like the local kids would kind of oh, look, there's a Dutch person. Isn't that strange kind of thing? And also you were required to tell the Japanese about anything that had happened in the world while you were away. (laughs) Really? You're a human newspaper for the news sort of three years ago when you last left the Western world. (laughs) I find find that really cool because at one point, Dejima was the only independent bit of the Netherlands. So at one point, the Netherlands was an artificial island. So... This is when the Netherlands was annexed by Napoleon, I think, in the Napoleonic Wars and like lots of Dutch uh, territory was taken elsewhere. And so that was where they lived. And I think they succeeded there because they're so used to living on basically artificial reclaimed land, mm. right? Yeah. yeah. The Netherlands is sort of mostly an artificial yeah. island really? in itself. About 60% of the land in the Netherlands is just there because they've drained away the water and they've built it up. It's amazing. Wow. Yeah. Cool. It's incredible. Most of the population lives on land that shouldn't naturally be there. Yeah. Wow. The tw- the, there's an entire province called Flevopolda, which is the 12th province of the Netherlands, and it's new. It's just a new really? bit of land. Yeah. Oh, because so polder is what they're called. Polder, yes. It's a polder, the reclaimed land, isn't yeah, it? Yeah. It would make you nervous, I think. That is incredible. Yeah. I found a really cool new artificial island, which... And I'm so annoyed I have not looked up the pronunciations, but I imagine you guys will know it. So Here we go. It's a bridge which connects Copenhagen to Malmo, and it's the Orosond Bridge. Orosond, yeah. Orosond. So yeah, I've been there. Have you been there? Yeah. Uh, okay. Apparently you've been to every artificial island <laughs> on this planet. Um, so the Orosond Bridge, if you're passing it, you go in the bridge and in then... That's what the TV show The Bridge is based on. Exactly, yes. yes. Yeah. And it goes down underneath, doesn't it? In, as opposed to being a bridge that connects Copenhagen to Malmo, it goes bridge-like and then suddenly it becomes a tunnel and you go underneath and that tunnel bit has become an artificial island which is called Pepperholm and Pepperholm is called that because there is an actual island next to it called Saltholm and nice. uh, yeah nice. um so that's the that's um so nice. they don't mention that in the bridge do they not? it's a really great tv show it's so exciting Saganaren, Lansky Malmö. it's really like cool and sexy and scandy right. and they don't ever say if they this. just had one character who just gave bits of trivia about the area that would be <laughs> maybe way it would have been a successful show exactly <laughs> but so yeah so it's become this artificial island and um how, sorry how does a tunnel become an island there's a stretch of water between yeah. the two between Malmo and where is it? Copenhagen. 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 Right. So you have a bridge over some of it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Then there's an island at the end of the bridge, yeah. and that island then contains the portal to a tunnel. Yes. The tunnel runs under the rest of the water. Right. And it comes up with so the boats see. can still go past, but you can yeah. have a bridge. I see. I see. Exactly. Very clever. And so what's happened is this small, very concrete-looking island has become a place where new species have migrated to and set up shop. And so you're only really allowed... <laughs> what are they selling? There's like a penguin going, what are they, fish? What are they, fish, anyone? Any fish? <laughs> so it supposedly, I mean, this is, I don't know if this is definitely still the case in 2021, but for the last few years, it's been the case that you can only go there once a year. And it's only biologists who are allowed to go there. 
And what they found on it is amazing. There's 12 species of bird that are living there. There were 20 species of spider, one really rare one, which they think might have migrated there via a train. So it sort of hopped off (laughs) while it was on the train. There's a couple of rabbits there that they think some people in a car must have just let out and let them be on their own. There's 345 species of beetle. There's 421 species of butterfly. Which vehicle did these all leap out (laughs) of? The beetles came in a yellow submarine. Okay, it is time for fact number three, and that is James. Okay, my fact this week is that the only known species of marine lichen was discovered by a person named Ivan Lamb. Their work often acknowledged the help of a Miss Elkie Mackenzie, but that turned out to be one in the same person, as Lamb later transitioned and took that name. Mm. That's very cool. Isn't that cool? So. Ivan Lamb was basically thanking her future self, exactly. Elkie McKenzie. Mm. Yeah. yeah. Or teasing. <laughs> it's a trailer, a trailer. trailer yeah. for. Yeah. yeah. So I read an obituary of um, Elkie McKenzie written by Vernon Akmadjian, um, but I'd actually first come across Elkie McKenzie in a blog by JSTOR, the website, mm. by Sabrina Imbler. And in that blog, there was an amazing thing that said that Mackenzie had spent her whole life preparing this monograph of a particular type of lichen, only for her never to be able to quite make it because sometimes her specimens got blown away once she fell down an elevator shaft. Yeah, did, did she, did she fall down like, an elevator shaft or did the lichen fall down? It's really hard to tell. But that yeah. was like what really piqued my interest yeah. about this person. It's like, what an amazing life. Um, but yeah, yeah, a really cool person who kind of dedicated her life to lichen. She worked in the Natural History Museum in London as an assistant to Annie Lorraine Smith in the 1930s. And it's just so interesting that at the time, Annie Lorraine Smith was a huge character in the lichen world, and she'd written a book which became the sort of seminal textbook for the time about lichen, yet she was not officially hired by the Natural History Museum because they didn't hire women at the time. Yeah. So she had oh. to have, as she, her pay packet was outsourced to somewhere else that could fund it because that was the only way that they could do it because they didn't have women on the payroll. Wow. Yeah. It's weird they're reading about the history of lichenologists because there do seem to be a lot of women mm. in there. Even, like in the 19th century, a lot of the people I was coming across were women, which is kind of exciting. It was like a secret area that women knew that they were going to be led into, almost, but not quite. And I did get excited that Carol Dodge, who was Elkie McKenzie's main rival, was also a woman, but it's not a woman. But um, oh. it's kind of sad, Carol Dodge, the Carol Dodge story, because Elkie didn't like Dodge. So what Elkie found that was really revolutionary in the lichen world was endemic Antarctic species, Mm. right? And she never got the chance to publish her Antarctic discoveries Mm. for various reasons. And she didn't like Dodge because she thought Dodge's taxonomy was kind of reckless and Dodge was just identifying things all over the shop. You know, you pick up a bit of lichen and you go, yeah, yeah, I bet that's a new one. Come (laughs) on, write it down. And now Dodge's record of Antarctic lichen is the kind of authority because Mackenzie for various reasons, one of which was that she said in, I can't remember what year she transitioned, was it the, I think it was the late 70s maybe? Mm. But she said, I am a woman, so I'm going to have the surgery. And she basically was made to take early retirement. Yeah, yeah, and, that's the implication, um, isn't it? They sort of tried to rewrite the history in the moment, didn't they? By saying, oh, it's just for reasons, but there was, it was quite obvious that that's why. Yeah. Post Mackenzie's retirement, she got into woodwork. 
Mm. Which uh, obviously felt like a bit of a wind down. And I think she had some mental health problems that she admitted to. She'd been quite depressed. And so she quit the whole lichen game and decided to get really into making seamen's chests. So, you know, cool. yeah. where, where, where else are you going to keep your seamen? <laughs> James, seamen chests are a completely different thing to seamen's chests. Oh, no. Wait. <laughs> then what have I been keeping mine in? Oh, my God. That's why they didn't invite you back on the boat. Oh, no. There's a treasure map out there where one day when it's found, it's going to be hugely disappointing. Just a pool of semen. X marks the spunk more like. Yeah. Wow, that was too far. Wasn't too it? far, yeah. yeah. <laughs> no, she didn't make receptacles for semen. Just to make that very clear, she so just made receptacles for Siemens gear. Oh, you know, okay. it's like that. It's like a suitcase. The only uh, notable thing really about them is that they're like a chest, but they have sides that tilt inwards because if you're on a rocky boat, you don't want them to clever. tip over. Very clever. Very clever. And they have very intricate knots in the handles called beckets. And this is what Elkie got particularly into: is making right. these knots. Mm. Just on lichen. Lichen are incredible. I didn't yeah. really know what they were. God, me neither. No. Mm. Why have we never talked about them before? And what they are is they're two things. They're two species living in the same house. It's mad. Or <laughs> rather, there's, it's one species living in a house built by another one. So it's a fungus and normally an algae teaming up. Sometimes it's an algae. Sometimes it's a cyanobacteria. Sometimes there are two algae. It gets a bit complicated. But basically, <laughs> basically, the basic thing is it's a fungus which builds a structure and the algae lives in it and photosynthesizes sunlight, which produces sugar, which the fungus then eats. So the fungus is providing the home and the algae is bringing in the food. And That's, so what's the lichen? It's the, it's the, the collective name. That thing is the, the lichen. Yeah. yeah, exactly. These two things that are working together, as you say, in symbiosis, the word symbiosis was coined by a guy called Heinrich Anton de Barry, and he was talking about lichens when he coined that term. Oh. Although Vernon <laughs> Matian who wrote the obituary of Elki, um, he doesn't think they're in symbiosis. He thinks that actually the fungus is a controlling parasite of the algae or cyanobacteria Ooh, or whatever. Or just stealing food off it. He's it's a toxic relationship. He's saying that, yeah, exactly, that the algae has no choice in the matter and it could perfectly happily live without a roof over its head. There's no evidence that they need this building that the fungi makes for them and the fungi is getting a free ride but it's okay. very it's big, controversial it's a big old debate and it's all, like everyone knows couples like that where you think <laughs> should they be together yeah. isn't one of them fine without the other one is it controlling parasitism no I, so, you can only judge these things from the inside unless you are an algae or a fungi you cannot comment so does the fungi absolutely need the algae then yeah yes. because it gets energy from the yeah. algae so the, the fungi can't do what most fungi do which is eat decompose matter which is how fungi normally survive but they've now evolved to just eat the food that's made for them by photosynthesis so they would starve and the argument is that the algae is getting some protection in return but a lot of people think that actually it doesn't need that protection right yeah it's controversial well yeah, i've like got it. actually something even more controversial to blow this mm. even wider open uh -huh. which is that they now think it's not a lichen is not two organisms it's three three <gasps> yeah. yeah so that and this is a massive discovery in the world of lichen. So this is that, there have been a bunch of mysteries about it. So one was that there were different lichen, which at a DNA level are exactly the same when they studied them, but that have different effects. Like some will kill you when you eat them and some are perfectly edible. And they're like, how is this possible? They look like they're the same thing. 
and they also had this problem where scientists can't recreate lichen in a lab which you should be able to because you should be able to get the fungus and the bacteria or the algae shove them together create it doesn't work Mm. and now they found a way of looking at them closer and they've realized they all have inside them a different fungus which is more like a yeast so right deep within their cells single cells of this other fungus. So is this every known lichen we're talking about? It seems like it might be the definition of lichen is this third thing. It's a new order of fungus. uh, So it's an extra fungus which is carried within the fungus that then takes to the... Exactly. It's very hard to blow this shit wide open because a lot of it is just learning about the original shit in the first place. (laughs) Can I just blow some more shit wide open? Please. So you know the... um, there's a lot of species of lichen that they thought were just a single species. There's one in particular which is called Dictionema glabratum, uh, and they thought it was just one species, and it turns out that it's at least 126 different species of lichen. <laughs> this one lichen that you'd never heard of. I know. It's actually 126 lichens that you'd never heard of. It's, it's really, amazing. It, that's incredible. Uh, which lazy intern did the first count of that? Well, the problem is... That when you take lichen from the natural setting, if you see that in the in the countryside, it might be lots of different colours, it might be lots of different shapes and stuff like that. As soon as you take it into the lab, it loses all of its colour. It becomes like a boring grey brown mm-hmm. sludge, and they kind of all look the same at that point. And so, loads of people were finding this stuff and bringing it back, and they couldn't tell the difference. And it's only when they look at the genes that they can now tell the difference it's between the different mad. species. I'll tell you what, if anyone's thinking of becoming a lichenologist, and I imagine after this chat, you're going to be applying. Yeah. Sure. Best place to do it, New Zealand, in my mind. Really? 10% of the world's lichen is found in New Zealand. And as of 2019, they had fewer than five lichenologists. Did wow. they? You would have an absolute playground there if you yeah. wanted to yeah. go and do that. And wasn't um, that the place that they had the sexy pavement lichen? It was, exactly. So was we, it in one of our books? We mentioned it in Book of the Year 2019. It was that New Zealanders, I believe, were told by the government to stop licking lichen on the ground <laughs> oh, yeah. because it was acting like Viagra. But and who was who was licking lichen off the ground? I don't think. I think they were taking it off the ground and they were ingesting it in a different way, maybe in a tea or something. Oh, so mixed really? messages because the word lichen comes from the Greek to lick. So yeah, you know, there you go. This. Yeah. But yeah, so they were getting an erection when they had this lichen, right? Yeah, exactly. And so why were they not allowed to do it? I think it was. Uh, <laughs> I, can't, I can't actually remember. Do you remember? Yeah. I think it Who's was. Who's going around stopping people having perfectly <laughs> healthy erections based on snuffing pavement scrapings? Maybe if you get the wrong lichen, then maybe your dick falls off or something. You know, because they are hard to tell apart. So I, it's probably the That's risky. true. Yeah. I do remember how it was. What was it? Um, it was that basically you would get lots of heavy metals leaching into it on the mm. on the pavements and stuff. You might get dog poo in it. You might get dog wee in it's it. Hard to, it's uh, hard to regulate and make truly <laughs> it's safe. It's hard to regulate. Yes. There was high levels of lead they found. They were found cadmium in it. They found mercury. They found arsenic. And the US Food and Drugs Administration <laughs> bought one lot online and found that it was actually 20% grass clippings and 80% ground up Viagra. I would say be a lichenologist in Britain because the British Lichen Society, as far as I can tell, are super on it. They have an amazing website and they just have a fabulous time. They've got about 650 members. A lot of competition there, though, isn't there? Like Mm. Dan was saying, only five lichen experts in New Zealand. Fewer than. (laughs) 
That's five. true. Why they just didn't Fewer name than... the number. <laughs> yeah, that's what the article said. Surely you could just say three if that's what it was. <laughs> Actually, in Britain, it's useful to become a lichenologist because I was going through the list of the presidents of this society, um, mm -hmm. specifically the women, and every single woman that I could find that had a Wikipedia article attached to their name, they've all got OBEs. So I don't know what's going on in the lichen world that the government mm. is recognizing their work towards the country, but they're all, they've all got titles. Wow. Yeah, so that's a quick way to an OBE, become a lichenologist. Wow, maybe there's some secret they're not telling us. <laughs> Doesn't feel like a quick way to become an OBE. Sorry, I think it takes years and years of craft. It's not like become an OBE with this one weird trick. <laughs> I actually am not sure it does take that long. Stop denigrating the work of the British Lichen Society. They're serious science dudes. No, Again, please don't about, write in. It's the OBE committee that we're talking about. Oh, what, they just see lichen and they just waggle it through. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, no, I'm saying it doesn't take long to become a lichenologist. It takes a week. Okay, yeah, this is what Anna just is saying. Oh, right. I just that's, like that's my point. This is because I was reading about Kerry Knudsen, or Kerry Knudsen, um, who's California's only professional lichenologist. He's a really fun guy. And he's fewer published... Than, fewer than two, I believe. <laughs> Californian lichenologist. Fewer than two. He's published over 200 papers on them. And he pretty much took up being a lichenologist after he retired. And now he's he maybe knows more about lichen than anyone else in the world, wow. claims the Atlantic. He was a construction worker for most of his life. He, so he ran away from home at 16 to join an anarchist commune. And <laughs> <laughs> wait a minute, wait a minute. He was a construction worker. Sorry, so before he, he was a construction worker. He built a lot of very wonky buildings <laughs> along anarchic lines. Yeah. No, he ran away at 16 before being a construction worker, took lots of acid, wrote lots of poetry, got into quite magic, was a big fan of friend of the podcast, Alistair Crowley. Oh, and okay. then he went off poetry because he didn't like the modernism direction it was going in, so worked in construction, got some blood clots in his legs, had to retire prematurely in his 50s. And he said to his daughter, I'm going to go back behind the house and I'm going to study whatever I find there. And he found lichen there. And so now he's the world leading lichenologist and wow. he named one after Obama that's his contribution to the lichen world oh well. I read about that one yeah yeah well, that was a big deal 2008 huge deal <laughs> you can age structures based on how fast lichen moves across it that's mm. that's a fun thing to do oh, uh, yeah. lichenometry they're incredibly slow growing some of them and I really like this the oldest lichens in the world are found in the arctic and they're a species called Rhizocarpum geographicum and they've been aged at 8,600 years, some of them. And they're still alive. Yeah, which I think would make them the oldest living organism on the planet. What? They also use them for detecting pollution levels, don't they? Mm. So if you're in a very polluted area, if a certain type of lichen is introduced um, and it doesn't grow, that means that the pollution levels are too high. And if you can bring them down and then the lichen starts growing there, that shows you that you're at the right level. So it's a really interesting bar for... That's why, because there's always some dickhead on a country walk that you're going on when trees are covered in lichen. There's always someone who goes, that's a good sign, actually. That's because that means it's really clean air. But isn't that true? Yes, it is. But it's just annoying. <laughs> that, like, they keep reminding me about it. I wow. get it, okay? Gosh, the tree looks a bit dirty, though. I wouldn't like to be in your club. <laughs> this is a stressful country walking club. Hey, can I please get listeners to solve a crisis that I had this weekend, which is sort of lichen-related, maybe. Uh -huh. um, okay. I was in the Chilterns. I was staying in this like, little bit of, bit of woodland, and we found a tree 
that was covered in ivy and then the ivy looked like basically a dump truck had dumped a load of mud on it like every single ivy leaf was covered in red soily mud mm. and we realised we traced it looking closely at the tree back to these sort of large dinner plate size what looked like fungi bright white kind of beautiful fungi growing straight out of the tree and in their dinner plate which was like a bowl there were mountains of this red soil stuff and I'm going to put I am going to get a picture on the podcast Twitter feed I'm somehow someone, engagement. someone will take me <laughs> and someone needs to tell me what it is <laughs> um, some names of lichen and you can mm. tell me why they're called this okay um, so dog lichen why is it called dog lichen looks like a dog looks no like it a... doesn't it's not <laughs> lichen's gonna look like a dog <laughs> it uh... grows in the shape of Scooby Doo <laughs> um... it catches balls in its mouth <laughs> no not that if dogs pee on it it eats it up and makes it stronger uh, than the other dogs okay. it grows towards the dog star serious <laughs> these are all amazing, amazing oh it's, uh, it's it's hairy like a dog like if you were walking in the forest you'd be like oh it's a dog but that, that's the same as it looks like a dog. That's just see, uh, see no. first answer. Mm. Uh, yeah, okay, I see. Mix it with half a pint of warm milk and it can cure... Do uh, a dog? Uh, rabies. Rabies, <gasps> correct. <gasps> Named by Linnaeus in 1753, dog lichen. Wow. Just in case anyone's listening who does happen to have bitten by a rabid dog, we should probably say it definitely doesn't cure rabies. No, go, go, to, go, go and get that. It's the half pound of milk that does all the work. Actually, <laughs> <laughs> Genuinely glad you guys added that. Because <laughs> in my head, that was how you cure it. Uh, okay, British cool. soldier lichen. Okay, for wounds on British soldiers, you oh, would, yeah, you would put it that's and it would good. sort of... Nope. I'm going to stick with my previous one. Looks like a British soldier. <laughs> Does no one want to shag it? You know how it was like the Americans came over and stole all the ladies? Maybe because oh, no one yeah. wants to shag the British. Uh, Andy was right. It looks like a British soldier. Thank you very much. Uh, it has yeah. a red cap, which looks a bit like the red hats worn by British soldiers during the American Revolutionary War. Uh, and rock tripe lichen. Ooh. Rock tripe. Mm. Tripe is um, innards and things, isn't yeah. it? So... Oh, is it one that lives inside a rock? Because there are, there are like, um, what are they called? They're like endolithic or something, Ooh. like and that live literally inside rock, okay. cool. which is incredible. Is outside a rock, but underneath a rock in a cave. Yeah, neither correct, okay. but great answers. Yeah. That's Andy. really good. Grows in a kind of string. It Andy. Look, looks like tripe. Looks like tripe. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> Two out of three. Uh, it also was t uh, gathered by George Washington's troops, supposedly, and mm. boiled into soup at Valley Forge. Uh, during the winter of 1777 so that's they ate it like tripe but also it looks a bit like tripe <laughs> <laughs> that's a pretty bad winter as well when you're having to persuade yourself that what you're eating is tripe <laughs> what you're eating is even worse than tripe yeah. <laughs> there is a lichen called rock gnome lichen as well oh, yeah. and this is endangered and no one's allowed to know where it is <sighs> because the US Fish and Wildlife Service said they had an option to label its location as critical habitat this is just, it's only found in like Georgia and the Carolinas and Tennessee in the mountains. And if you label something as critical habitat, that means people know where it is. Oh. You publish it. And then you get these lichen collectors who are over-enthusiastic who go and nick it. So they kept it super secret. And sweetly, the person who was in charge of guarding its location was a National Park Service botanist called Janet Rock. Oh, oh. Lovely. that's cool. And where is it in Georgia and... I'm not giving you any further details, James. I'm just thinking I could do with an OBE quite soon. <laughs> <laughs> okay, it is time for our final fact of the show, and that is Andy. My fact is that eBay employs staff whose job includes sniffing trainers. Wow. Yeah. 
They're the Gosh. shoe perverts of eBay, <laughs> and they are for legal reasons not. Oh. No, for, yeah, they are absolutely not uh, perverts. This is part of their job. I don't want, need to make it any clearer. These people are not perverts. They're not getting a kick out of it. Also, got a sick thrill. This is because eBay sells a lot of shoes, uh, which I I didn't know because I'm not a sneakerhead. Is what they get called. Uh, people mm. who collect and trade and you know buy and sell and sometimes make a living selling shoes to each other and collecting them sounds like they're just people who wear them on the wrong bit of their body but uh, <laughs> <laughs> could be the same yeah. and so there are so many fake shoes on the market now mm. which uh, are obviously not worth nearly as much as the real deal you mean that- fake brands the shoes you, you could get your shoe <laughs> onto your foot right it's not like you put your foot in it's it like, you're like oh, oh yeah. it's an well, algae it's not made of blamange <laughs> and it turns out every damn time no they're real shoes but they're not really made by Nike or whoever so eBay has got experts in trainer provenance whose job is to put shoes through their paces. Nice. Thank you. To assess whether they're real or fake. And any shoes that are worth over 150 quid that are bought on eBay, because they have to have some kind of lower floor in it. They can't check all of them. Yeah. Any shoes worth over 150 quid go through this center, sneaker authentication center, and the seller doesn't get the money until the shoes have been authenticated, and then they get forwarded to the buyers. Cool. And the, the smelling is part of that, because there are so many different ways you can tell whether a trainer is authentic or not. There's the stitching, there's the glue, and the glue has a smell. And yeah. the, all, all these other methods. It's something like 52 elements they've yeah. identified wow. in it's the crazy. process. To, yeah, so it's, as you say, it's the glue, it's the quality of ink on the inside of the tongue, there's the variations <laughs> of color, um, there's the smell check as yeah. well. Well, eBay are going on the road with this. It's very exciting. They're doing nationwide authentication. What do you mean? Like touring? I, I wouldn't watch that show. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Come to our show. Come have to you our ever show seen the Antiques Roadshow? It's basically mm. that. Okay. It's, well, I mean, basically they have an ice cream van. I've slightly hyped up the nationwide tour element of it, but the ice cream van is touring the country. And if you bring your sneakers along worth over a hundred quid, then they will authenticate them. Or not, they will they'll bust this shit wide open on your foot. Will they um, fill one of my sneakers up with Mr. Whippy and put a flake in it? <laughs> no, they won't. They're only doing a few dates as well on this tour. I think because ice cream vans can't go on the motorway and I presume they're going to have to take B roads all the way around <laughs> um, there was an amazing article on thisismoney.co.uk uh, written by Grace Godson uh, and she actually smelled the shoes and said that she could definitely tell the difference the journalist hey. uh, yeah she said that the um, ones that are fake just kind of s- smell really chemically a bit like nail varnish but the real ones smell more like tennis balls according oh, to her yeah. um, but she yeah. also said that if you want to work in these warehouses then you have to pass an entrance test which involves a blind test whether can you tell a sneaker is real or fake just by smelling it oh. so you have to pass that test to get wow. the job really? so weird yeah, cool. imagine them are they so they are blindfolded yeah it's wow. pretty weird, That's cool. isn't it? Yeah. That's cool. It is cool. It's amazing. That- it must be so hard, though, because a lot of these sneakers, most of them are manufactured in China, in Chinese factories. and The real ones. The real ones, yeah. but also the fake ones. And the fake ones, in the article I read, say that they're often attached literally to the real factory. So you've got the sort of fake factory that's using 90% of the materials anyway. So 90% of it is as close to the thing that you would have. It's just the actual manufacturing and and stitching together process where, yeah. It's so mad. They're also employing trainers to test watches uh, within the next couple of months. Human trainers. Human trainers. Human <laughs> trainers. Human sniff the trainers. The trainers test the watches. <laughs> the watches. At the centre. Watch the trainers. <laughs> Watching. I think the watches were first, actually. Oh, were oh, really? they? Yeah. Oh, I think maybe they're upgrading. I read that they were looking for a new tranche of... 
watch trainers in August this year. I didn't realise that eBay gets almost all of its profits now from three items. What are the three? Trainers, luxury watches, trading cards. Oh, really? Apparently, this is the, the, um, the third category that has authentication from June 2021 is handbags. Is it? Yeah. Maybe they're trying to branch out oh. into a fourth direction. Wow. As in, you can get everything else on eBay. It's just that their shares are mostly going down. People aren't buying other stuff on them anymore. Mm, on it anymore. Interesting. But those three things. And the thing is with the authentication is you as a buyer don't pay for it and the seller doesn't pay for it either. eBay pays for it. And you think, well, what's the point of that? But actually the sales of luxury items like watches and sneakers and probably soon handbags has gone up massively since people have known that they're going to get the real deal. Has it? Interesting. The growth in sneakers has gone up by triple digits year on year for the last couple of years. So Yeah, apparently they sell a pair every nine seconds. When companies make trainers and sneakers, especially in the last 10, 15 years, they often make them mostly in sizes 8, 9, and 10 because they're the most popular sizes for men and men are the people who bought most of these trainers. Mm. But these days, more women are wanting these trainers and so... The smaller sizes are rarer. And so if you're a counterfeiter, you're more likely to go for the smaller sizes because actually, you know, there's less on the market for them. So you're more likely to find that women's trainers are fake than the men's trainers. But does it matter to sneakerheads? A lot of these shoes are never worn. That's the thing I find so I think weird. You still and buy them in your size usually. <laughs> yeah. When you say yeah, never worn, are there many? Are there really many people who are buying loads of sneakers that they don't intend to wear? Collectors have hundreds of pairs. It's mad, and a lot of them but they can't they afford can't be... to wear themselves because they don't want to wear out a ten thousand dollar pair of sneakers. They keep them because they have that value. If they wore them, they'd become really grubby and they'd lose their value. But there can't be that many people that do that. that that's are. what's funding eBay in its top <laughs> I'm three most it's important things. Billion it's dollar industry. Very huge. In the future, Dan, in two hundred years. People will say, did you know people used to wear these decorations on their feet? (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, it is. That is true. Yeah. And the other advantage of doing the women's shoes, for instance, is Mm. because you need less um, materials to make them, of course. So the markup is bigger. Mm. I always buy shoes three sizes too big so I can circumvent the possibility that they're fake. (laughs) (laughs) They do get, there are sometimes seizures of counterfeit sneakers at customs and ports and things like that. So in... 2019, there was a Chinese guy called uh, Ching Fu Zheng who was arrested for allegedly importing 22 shipping containers of fake trainers into the USA, disguised as napkins, not disguised, labeled as napkins, <laughs> which would have been worth $472 million. Whoa, it's just an insane amount of money that yeah. you can make. Of, and he had this complicated system set up to get them in and then get them distributed. Um, that's why they make you take your shoes off at security, right? To test their real. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You just look back, the security people are huffing away at them, yeah. giving them a good sniff. Um, Anna was talking about buying um, shoes that were too big and then putting loads of socks in there so that they fit. Um, I didn't, I haven't actually come up with that workaround. I just buy shoes that are too big, but thank God you solved my blister problem. (laughs) Well, the reason that I made that solution in my head is because I was reading about a guy called Jim Thorpe, who was um, the first Native American to win a gold medal at the Olympics. And he was in the decathlon. So after the first day, he was miles ahead, but then someone stole his shoes. Okay. So he didn't know what to do for the second day because they were his only pair of shoes. Mm -hmm. So he looked around and he found like in the garbage, like a couple of odd shoes and he wore them, but one of them was massively too big. So he had to wear loads of pairs of socks (laughs) in that foot. So there are pictures of him in odd shoes with one foot with loads of socks on. And in the second day he won 
pretty much all the events and won the gold in the decathlon in the 1912 olympics and on the same day he also won i think it was the long jump or the high jump and the 110 meters hurdles and the 1500 meters wearing odd shoes wow isn't that Very amazing cool. well I mean, why doesn't everyone do that now it's clearly an advantage yeah Must be, right <laughs> but also it sounds like he could have tried a bit harder just to get a pair of shoes right like if the, yeah. if the jamaicans were able to borrow a bobsled <laughs> surely because i only found out recently that shoes you used to be able to inflate them yourself <laughs> sorry because now i have to go to a shop to inflate them <laughs> what? <laughs> what are you talking about Aren't all your shoes blow up shoes <laughs> Um, okay, I'm glad you don't remember this, James, because this was during the sneaker wars of the 1990s. You all remember oh. uh, the Nike versus Reebok, oh, yeah. and this, yeah, yeah, the, the pump ups, yeah. yeah. No, sorry, I'm not with you on wasn't this. Wasn't Air Jordans, but they had the air pump as well, didn't they? Did Air Jordans? Yeah, have the Air Jordans. Look, I was not allowed to wear any cool shoes during the nineties. <laughs> okay. so can someone explain <laughs> so this? So they to used me, to, they used to be <laughs> so on the tongue. imagine the pair of brogues. <laughs> <Right? Yeah>. Thank <laughs> you. <laughs> <laughs> you you inflated them from the tongue, and this was an innovation by Reebok. Their tongue. Their. <laughs> 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 have you seen the movie uh, Men in Tights? Robin Hood Men in Tights. I have not. I, don't, oh, I wasn't damn. allowed to watch that. <laughs> <laughs> okay. But this apparently clinched it for Reebok for a while. Nike's always been the big guy. Reebok's always been the underdog. And they had these self-inflate shoes. So uh, they no one bought them because they thought that's really weird. And then there was just one slam dunk championship. Basketball seems to be more about the shoes than it is about the basketball. You rarely get a team in barefoot winning the NBA. <laughs> <laughs> Not since the 1912 Olympics. <laughs> so this guy, D. Brown, did this move before he did his amazing slam dunk and won the competition where he just bent down and he pumped up his shoes with the tongue and then he slam dunked it and then after that the crowd went insane and then it became his thing every time he went to take a shot he would pump up his shoes and then deflate them afterwards no no not no. In, not in a match he wouldn't dribble no. the ball <laughs> not mid match bend no. down pump yeah <laughs> when you're doing like a, a dunk from you know, standing position you you know the lingo dan you know what i'm trying to say well and i don't know we should just say for andy i it i don't know the pump actually did anything as in yeah. your shoe functioned it wasn't like a deflated shoe that you pumped air into. It just was this sort of... But this basketballer who pumped the tongue, did that That did have an effect, did it? Mm, I, no. I mean, I, I don't know. Did. They I always refused to say. It's, it's suggested it had ankle support and they were always asked, does it give you a bit more bounce and make it pumpy? And they always said, we're refusing to say if that gave oh, them more bounce. Really? Okay. Well, I never noticed it. You didn't know. You just, so just and you would pump thick, for ages. It was just a cool thing to do. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. It wasn't like um, having a pogo stick suddenly attached no, to it. No, exactly. <laughs> yeah, they weren't moon shoes. Um... <laughs> There was a story this year about a lady who has made £2,500 by selling old crisp packets from the 1980s. Oh, yeah. But they had released figures on how many of these ostensibly not very glamorous items have been sold uh, over a three-month period this year. 350 crisp packets, 206 wine corks, 225 empty jam jars, 37 toilet roll tubes. But it's hard to make a million from them because they, on average, go for 2p each. That's a cheap telescope, though, if you want to make... a that's true that's true i think people must be buying crisp packets to do the um blow it up and bang it thing oh, yeah. which i love doing I but don't... i don't eat enough crisps to do that as often as i'd want to i would have thought it was set dressing for a tv show in oh, the yeah. 1980s it's weird where our brains go because i was thinking you would buy it and hopefully there's a few little crumbs of crisps <laughs> left in the corner <laughs> and you can lick your finger and get them out we've all got good reasons but i mean that's true you won't be able to taste the 80s again will you 
No. That's no. a slogan for your firm. Uh, Trading <laughs> these taste things. the 80s. Yeah, great. You can taste the 2010s by buying the pre-sugar tax drinks that are available on eBay. Oh. Oh. I genuinely thought about buying one of these for my brother, who I've never seen him so furious as when LucasAid uh, half the sugar content in their drinks. It hasn't sort of, been the same. It's- it doesn't taste the same. So in 2018, the sugar in Iron Brew halved. There was lots of rules over the last few years saying, you know, you've got to reduce your sugar. And you can buy a LucasAid pre 2011 for 145 pounds. Okay, mm. I might just suck it up. That's quite a lot, isn't it? <laughs> but imagine how good that's going to taste now after all these years. I, I'm with your brother, actually. I think modern pop is disgusting. Really? Can you yeah. taste the difference? Oh, yeah, really. I, can. I don't really? think anymore. Well, ironically, oh, really? you listen to a lot of modern pop, which I find disgusting. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, that's it. That is all of our facts. Thank you so much for listening. If you would like to get in contact with any of us about the things that we have said over the course of this podcast, we can be found on our Twitter accounts. I'm on at Schreiberland, Andy, at Andrew Hunter M, James, at James Harkin, and Anna. You can email podcast.qi.com. Yep, or you can go to our group account, which is at no such thing, or you can go to our website, no such thing as a fish.com. All of our previous episodes are up there. Also, do check out the upcoming tour dates. We are back on the road as of October the 5th, going around the UK and Ireland. Come along, it's going to be an awesome night, and uh, we want to geek out with you all. Okay, we'll see you again next week with another episode. Goodbye. Goodbye.